Amen. You may be seated. This morning we finish a series of messages we started back at the end of May, the series called Renew. And in this series of sermons, we've been looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives and how we're called to live a Spirit-centered life. We've taken time to look back at how the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost, giving it a capacity to do the very work and mission of Jesus in the world. That without the Holy Spirit, it is impossible to do that which God has invited all of us to do as the body of Christ. And that work that God has given us to do is not a private one, it is a public one. It is one that is to happen outside of the four walls of this church. And so inside these four walls, we are equipped and encouraged and built up in Jesus Christ so that we might be sent out of this church into the world to be the very witnesses of Jesus that we're called to be. Now, that means that in some ways, as we've looked at over the last few weeks, we have to be careful as we look at one another and as we look at the world around us that we're all coming from different places, different social locations, different points of privilege, whatever it might be, that draw us to the very center of Jesus. We all have different paths, but Jesus is at the center, pulling us in like gravity, if you will, to the very heart of God. And last week, we talked about the importance of commitment in that, how we each need to be committed to community, to one another, to Christ, and what it means to make that decision to commit our life to God. And on this last Sunday in this series, we want to focus the attention on the God who provides, that God is a pro at provision. And we're going to look at a story in the book of Genesis that I shared with you a moment ago. It's probably one of the most difficult stories in the Bible. And I want to talk for a moment about how we hold a brutal story. And so let's just not think about this in the ways maybe we've been taught over the years. I just want you to hear the story just strictly as a run-of-the-mill human being. That God made a promise to Abraham that through his son Isaac, they would become a nation of multitudes. And then God tells Abraham, I want you to murder your own son. It's the only instance in the Bible where we have God giving the directive to murder one's own child. So don't worry about hearing that theologically yet. Just sit with that for a minute. It's a brutal story. A father is told to sacrifice his own son. You understand why we did not select this text for Father's Day. <laughs> this is part of what's called a patriarchal history. And it goes from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to the end of the book. Hmm. Take five seconds and pray wherever that fire engine is going.
Amen. This patriarchal history reads like a soap opera. It's the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Just up to this point, just up to Genesis 22. Ten meager chapters of Genesis. So far, we have Abram, who becomes Abraham. He's called to leave his home and his family members behind. He's then told to go to a land and defeat the native people who live there. We read about a citywide sexual assault in Sodom and Gomorrah. We read about Abram, who ended up having a child through his wife's servant, Hagar, that would be Ishmael, and then with his wife, Sarah, who is Isaac. And then we would go on to read about how he's estranged from his firstborn son, Ishmael, and sends him off into the wilderness. And now we get to the human sacrifice of his own son. It's a colorful story, isn't it? You know, this, the story is a story of faithfulness. And so the question I want us to begin thinking about is how do we hold these stories of faithfulness when they seem a bit ancient and in many ways unrelatable? Not many of us have been asked to sacrifice our firstborn child. So how do we process these stories? And on top of that, there's a conflict here, and the conflict is that God has said, through Isaac, you will become a great nation of multitude, and now I want you to kill him. Do you see the contradiction? And that's what makes this story hard to hold. It makes it difficult, because it's a brutal story for us. Now, I often find that when we come to these stories that are hard to hold, there's always the the quick rush to try to explain what it means. You know, it's the kind of the quick rush to explain things when you have maybe a friend or a loved one that's gone through a tragic episode and people say something absolutely stupid to them instead of just being with them and being present with them. We try to explain these stories away quickly. And you won't hear me say this very often, but I'd say it today is oftentimes we do so without any grounding theologically or without any kind of theological education or background. We just try to make the story make sense as quick as we can instead of saying, no, 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 this requires a thoughtfulness. It requires us to maybe even look to brighter minds than our own to help us learn how to hold these difficult stories. If you don't think this is a story in conflict, I would submit to you that you might be arrogant. John Calvin, the great reformer, said the command and promise of God are in conflict in this story. Martin Luther, Martin Luther said that this story is filled with a contradiction with which God contradicts himself. And so how do we hold hard things? There's two questions that we can just wonder about for a moment as we walk through this passage how do we hold the hard things from God? And what place does our own humility have when we choose to hold things rather than resolve them? You see, when we want to resolve things, that almost smacks of a little bit of arrogance, that I'm smart enough to figure this thing out, versus the humility of saying, I don't know quite how to figure this thing out, so instead of solving it, I'm just going to hold it. Now, on the one hand, we have the faith of Abraham, and on the other hand, we have the faith of God. 
So let's talk about the faith of Abraham first, and then we'll talk about the faith of God. Now, the faith of Abraham is remarkable in this story, and it has four different components, and I want to just throw them up on the screen real quick for you. The first thing we find in the story from Abraham is availability. You'll notice when you heard the story read by uh, Nolan a few moments ago that there's three different times Abraham is addressed in the story. The first time God speaks to him, the second time Isaac speaks to him, and the third time an angel of the Lord speaks to him. And every single time Abraham responds with this statement, here I am. No matter who's talking to him or who's asking a question, he responds with here I am. So the beginning of his faithful posture is availability in this text. There's a second piece of Abraham's faithfulness here is his perspective that he has. He's told by God to take his son to a mountain that, he would, that God would show him, and there he's going to sacrifice his son. And so Abraham sets out. They come to the mountain. Abraham sees it, and they arrive there. And when they get there, Abraham is going to take Isaac up the mountain, but Abraham's servants, he's going to leave at the base of the mountain. So he gives instructions to his servants that he's left behind. We are going to go up the mountain, and we will, did you hear the text? Return to you. We will worship and return to you. It's in verse 8. There's almost a way in this text in which Abraham's affirming the fact that I know God's told me to kill Isaac, but we're coming back. Not singular, plural. We will come back. So he has a perspective on what's going to happen. Even though God has told him that he's to take his son and kill him, there's a perspective that permeates all of that. And then in verse 8, there's the third piece of Abraham's faith, trust. When Isaac asks him when they go up the mountain, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? He says this, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. I mean, you can imagine what's going through Isaac's mind. There's a few things you're going to need to have to make a burnt offering when you go up on top of a mountain. You need flint or a torch to start a fire. You need wood for the fire. And you need the animal you're going to sacrifice. So they head up the mountain, and only one of those items is strangely absent. The lamb. And that's why Isaac asks his father. He says, Father, and then Abraham responds with, Here I am. And then the story unfolds. He says, God will provide. So there's a sense in which Abraham has a trust that God is a pro at provision. That no matter what happens that God is going to provide. And then the fourth thing is devotion. And the devotion is this. It's in verse 10. He took the knife. Now, the process of a burnt offering is a little graphic for a Sunday morning. So listen to the podcast from earlier this week. He has to put the knife to the throat of his son. That's what he means, he took the knife. He took the knife and was ready to act. That's devotion. That's a devotion that I frankly don't understand. And that's part of the story that it's hard for me to hold, even. What, what's that mean, to do that? I, I can't even imagine. I just spent the last two days with my son in San Diego. I, I, I can't even process it. What we discover here is how Abraham regards this covenant with God. 
Remember this covenant where through Isaac they would become a great nation? So there's a sense in which Abraham has this faithfulness that says no matter what happens on the mountain, even if I kill my own son, somehow God is going to fulfill that covenant and that promise. It's a, it's a story of faithfulness that I find it hard, hard to understand. Now, there's a lot more stories of Abraham that follow, but this is the apex of the story. This is the climax. What kind of faith does this man have in God? So let me ask a question of us as we think about this. Is faith real before it's tested? Is faith real before it's tested? I, I find oftentimes that, at least in my own life, I... I espouse a lot of faith. <laughs> My mouth runs wild. After all, I am a preacher. But is that faith real before it's tested? Now, don't worry about who's doing the testing. Don't get into that yet. But is it real before it's tested? In other words, does it have to have a, faith have to have a moment of conflict, crisis, a moment in which we we experience some kind of suffering or hardship is that somehow when we know whether we have faith or not I was uh, visiting with a clergy colleague on Friday we were stuck in traffic and we were talking about the the effect COVID and the pandemic have had on the life of the church and my colleague said something really interesting to me he said you know um, before the pandemic, we used to have a lot of people who would come to our church and worship, and they'd be there every four to eight weeks. We'd see them every now and then. They'd come in, and then they would be very engaged when they were there. People were happy to see them shaking their hand and whatnot. And he said, after COVID, we don't see those people anymore. The people we see after COVID are the people that are there almost every Sunday. They were there a lot before COVID, and now they're there a lot after COVID. I don't know. Maybe people found out and discovered Sunday brunch. I don't know. Hard story, isn't it? Hard truth for us to hold, isn't it? That one of the strange things that pandemic has done to the Christian church is it sifted us. It sifted us. And it's still sifting us. And, and that doesn't have anything to do with whether your rear end is warming that pew you're in right now. It's sifting us. And so is faith real before it's tested? Before it has crisis? Or maybe it's that crisis reveals the faith we have. We understand better our trust and faithfulness in Christ when those moments come. I don't know. I don't know. It says in James chapter 2, verse 21 this. Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture which was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. So maybe when faith is a concept, it has a degree of comfort to us. But when faith is tested, like this, faith becomes work. Faith becomes a manifestation. It becomes a set of behaviors. It becomes a set of practices. It becomes something outside of us when we have those moments. So a couple of questions for us to wonder about. When was the last time your faith made itself known? And another question, is faith an internal virtue, or is it an external practice, or is it both? And how is that true? So you remember, holding the story is hard, because there's the faith of Abraham, and then there's this other part, which is the faith of God. And the part of the story we lean into the most is the faith of Abraham. We talk about the faith of Abraham, that's the explanation we talk about. Oh, look how faithful he was. In a brutal story. But is there another faith at work in the story that we should spend some time with? I think there is. What about the faithfulness of God in the story? What about the faith of God in Abraham, even? You know, the story that we read in Genesis chapter 22 is a story of testing and provision. And um, during the podcast that came out earlier this week, we talked about how there's this um, a pivot point in the middle of the story that we just read. And before that, God is depicted as the tester. And then after that pivot point, God is depicted as the provider. Testing and provision, testing and provision. Here's another tension we get to hold. As if that wasn't enough already. This is the exact contradiction that Luther and Calvin were both speaking of. That here's a God who seemingly contradicts himself. So if this is just some kind of final exam for Abraham, you know, to see whether he graduates or not, then I really am not sure what to do with this story. And to be honest, if that's the meaning of the story, I don't particularly care for it. That God is just some cosmic despot going around testing everybody to see if they have the metal or not. I don't know if I believe in that God. But notice how the story ends. Abraham's there, knife ready to go. And then it says, an angel of the Lord appeared. Now, the first time God spoke to him, and when God spoke, it used the regular word in the Bible for God, Elohim in Hebrew. But this third time that God speaks in the story, God speaks through an angel and it says it's the angel of the Lord. And this time it's not Elohim, this time it's God's covenant name, Yahweh, the name of God. Like if you were taking attendance in a classroom and God was in the classroom, you'd go, Yahweh? And look to see if they're, but that's the name of God. An angel of Yahweh. So you see how the story starts to change. It moves away from this deity into the personal God, the one with a name, the one that engages, the one of covenant, the one that met Moses at the burning bush later. That's the God that appears in this angel and tells him to stop. 
And then Abraham looks over and he sees a ram caught in a thicket, like a, in a bush, can't get its horns out. And so Abraham offers that instead of his son, Isaac. Maybe there is a test going on here. And instead of maybe God putting Abraham to the test, maybe God himself is putting God to the test to prove something to Abraham, to make manifest something to him that he needs to know. And maybe that truth has to do with whether God will provide when it's necessary. You know, it's a common saying in the life of the church, you know, that people will say, you know, God is good, and the response is, all the time. And then someone says, all the time. I disagree with this statement. Because in my experience, in my life most of the time, God isn't good all the time. God is good just in time. God is good just in time. And that's this story. Is not God good just in time? This is something that God wants us to understand in our lives deeply, that there is a provision that God has for us and a provision that's constantly at work in our life, and oftentimes we simply take it for granted. One of my favorite theologians on the Jewish scripture of the Old Testament is Walter Brueggemann. And here are four observations he has. I just thought I'd quote the man instead of trying to can him up. So here is Walter Unleashed. Number one, God tests to identify his people, to discern who is serious about faith, and to know in whose, it should be life, sorry for the typo, in whose life he will be fully God. Oh. That means there's a sense of the way in which we understand those who play Christian and those who are. Those who pretend and those who are deeply committed. The founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, once said, Either Jesus is Lord of all or not at all. Those are the polarities we live in. That's what we get to hold. Second thing Brueggemann says, that this notion of testing and providing, ah, this is good. It becomes a crucifixion resurrection in the faith, faith of the church. Doesn't it kind of make sense with the paradox of the gospel itself? that through the death of Jesus, salvation comes to the whole world? Doesn't this narrative work its way out that through death, life comes? That doesn't seem to be quite right. It's a little confusing, isn't it? It's the gospel. This is why the Apostle Paul calls it foolishness. Because it makes no sense in that way, but it makes all the sense into the world when we experience it. The third thing Brueggemann says is that the test of Abraham corresponds to the central teaching of discipleship. Perhaps you've seen this verse before from Mark 8.35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. You see the contradiction? In order to save your life, what do you have to do? You have to lose it. But if you lose your life, for the sake of Jesus, what do you get? You save it. This is what happens for Abraham. It's through this 
act of sacrifice that he makes in every intentionality of his life, he experiences the fullness of God's provision for him. So who's being tested, Abraham or God? Maybe God's trying to tell Abraham something he needs to know. Might this story confront our own trust in God's grace? Huh. So a couple of questions. Is God the star of our life? Or is God an extra? The church in America is being sifted, my friends. Sifted. And to be honest, for all of us culturally accommodating Christians, that's not a bad thing. It's actually not a bad thing for us to get grounded again as fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. It is not a bad thing for us to double down on our commitment to be in community, to be the church together, that we are not dabblers, we are not tippers, we are not people who simply skim the surface, but we are people who are deeply committed to following Jesus Christ in every dimension of our lives. And that's maybe what this story is trying to tell us, is that the kind of faithfulness that Abraham displays is the kind of faithfulness that brings a revelation of God's provision that we could never imagine. That life lived to the brink for God is a life in which God will provide everything that we could ever think, ask, or imagine. This story is hard, isn't it? And I would submit to you it's, it's hard because there's a man who's called to sacrifice his son, but it's especially hard because it confronts every part of us that is still reluctant to let Jesus be Lord of our life. And that hurts us to recognize that there are places of our lives that are not yet submitted to Jesus. That Jesus, you can have this, but not that. Because that's not what we see of Abraham in this story, is it? He gives everything to God, and God's provision is abundant. Of course, Isaac lives, doesn't he? But friends, let me just ask you a simple question of biology. Doesn't Isaac eventually die? So the issue isn't whether Isaac lives or dies. The issue is how Isaac lives or dies. So the question for us is the same. It's not a matter of whether we're going to die. We are. Are we going to die like we're going on to life? Or are we going to die like that's all there is? I wonder. I wonder. So with a little bit of heaviness today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come before you as people who read the story that seems primitive and savage, a story that's a little upsetting to us. But even as we hear the story read, even as we hear it proclaimed, we recognize that there is faithfulness in this story. Faithfulness, yes, on Abraham's part, 
But faithfulness always, that comes from you. That when all others in our lives may quit, when institutions and people and organizations and stuff let us down, that you will always provide. And as we gather around this table, we celebrate the greatest provision of all, Jesus. The Jesus whom we and the entire human race killed. Through his death, you bring life. We remember the night in which he gave himself up for us. How he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when, when the supper was over, Jesus took the cup, he returned thanks to you, gave it to the disciples, saying, take, drink from this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you and for many, for my, in my blood, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fall down upon us now and upon these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life, death, and resurrection, that in him we have life abundant. We do so with hearts filled with gratitude and faithfulness. Thank you, God, for loving us. We pray and ask all this in Jesus' name as he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.